Thanks again for joining us here on Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to Lake Sediments. Uh, my name is Adam Jaziorski, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Josh Steenpot. Hey, how's it going? And for once, I'm not going to ask you what you want to talk about today, because we're doing part three. We're just rolling along. Part three. Wow. Uh, and when we were planning this out... I, uh, in the last episode, if you've listened to it, I said, oh, we can definitely finish it in episode three. Spoiler alert, we're not going to finish it. There's still quite a bit left to talk about in the history of paleolimnology. So this is three of four, question mark? Four-ish. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, maybe we should start with a little reminder of where we were after episodes one and two. Okay. So this is uh, part three of the history of paleolimnology, um, and it's our attempt to construct a rough history of how we get to how we got to where we are today in the subdiscipline of paleomology. Uh, part one um, was very much about establishing which are some of the main shoulders that the first paleomologists need to stand on before the discipline could really emerge as its own thing. Um, and so that, in, t- in terms of science in general, microbiology, taxonomy, chemistry, geology, limnology, ecology. In part two. Um, we looked more specifically at some of the pioneers of paleolimnology itself, um, a little bit about the importance of the Hutchinson Group at Yale to ecology and limnology in general, and ended with a little bit about the development of coring equipment. And that takes us to today, where all the bits and pieces were in place for uh, some real rapid development um, as early paleo developed and matured from largely qualitative analyses into the quantitative um, ana- uh, quantitative approaches that we're familiar with today. And that was really driven, at least we're making the argument today, and it was largely driven by uh, methods to date the sediments and the advances in computing power that allowed multivariate statistics to be done by humble biologists. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a, well, I mean, we're making it, so that's a strong, strong place to start our argument. But uh, from a paleo perspective, if you look at where we are today, uh, we finished with taking cores. You, you know, we have to add a chronology to the cores, and most people are applying some sort of statistical approach. Uh, and certainly, as paleolimnology matured, as we'll finish with today in the acid rain debates, that was critical for being able to carry out the types of analyses that were essential to making paleolimnology sort of, I don't want to say a household name because that's not necessarily the case, but broadly applicable in the environmental sciences. So yeah, should be a good, good little chat. Yeah. And and some of the stuff we've, you know, we'll plug our old stuff. We've talked about in some detail before about specifics of dating, which I believe was in episode three, which seems like a very, very long time ago. Um, no kidding. <laughs> I think that's more a, a function of the world than it is a yeah, function of the number times. of episodes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, um, but we've also dedicated a full episode to uh, transfer functions, which would, um, when we're talking about multivariate statistics, and there we were talking about just how it's done as opposed to the importance of how big a development it was for paleo. Um, and similarly, we've dedicated an episode talking about uh, the importance of computing power. So all these, you know, like the repetitive strands, but here we're talking about in like, you know, I guess our history of paleomology. Yeah, in the context of all of the other things, for sure. Those were sort of standalones and what, and this is sort of when and also a little bit of, of why maybe. Yeah. And uh, I think just to put a little emphasis, this is, our history or a history. I'm mean, sure we've left a lot of stuff out and some people may be offended by what we picked and choose it, picked and chosen. Um, and that's just a product of, this is our show. This is our perspective in terms of our inherent biases based on being North Americans or more, 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 most familiar with, you know, North American examples of acidification is what's going to yeah. come up here. Well, we're, of we'll course. try and refer to Europe a little bit, but it's just, honestly, we're less familiar with it. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> in terms of lineages and stuff, we've not attempted to leave anybody out. It's just more a case of 
you know, what we know and what we come across in the very, very, very detailed research sessions that we perform before each of these episodes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But <laughs> off we go, if that's the case. Uh, and so I guess to start, let's start with dating, because after taking a core, you know, it's not really that useful to be able to perform a principal components analysis if you don't really know when the dates uh, for individual intervals and for that entire core fall. The importance of dating and just establishing some sort of chronology in general is fundamental to modern paleolimnology, particularly if you're interested in environmental questions, which are very recent. If you're talking about thousands of years ago over, you know, the last glacial kind or the post last glacial cycle, then being a little bit more hand wavy that this was a long time ago, this is more recent towards the surface is going to be fine. But you need to really be able to nail that chronology if you're going to talk about changes that occurred in a year or a couple of years time period. And, and that's the kind of detail necessary if you're going to use them for regulatory kind of applications like we're done with acid rain, for example. Yeah, or if you're trying to tie it to the establishment of a mine or the, you know, the building of a dam. Like when you're trying to tie something to a particular event, that you need to know where in your core that event actually occurred. And in order to do that, you need to be able to date your sediment intervals. And... Um, Prior to the 1970s, the ability to do that was highly, highly limited. You're either limited to VARs, which we've talked about before. They're basically the um, alternating couplets of light, dark layers of sediment that occur in some lakes that are an annual event, so you can count backwards through time. But the number of lakes where VARs form is very, very limited, Um, so it can't be applied broadly. Uh, And then outside of that... uh, the other only real option was uh, using radiocarbon dating, which was, you know, cutting edge, you know, developed in like the late 1940s um, and is not really appropriate for, you know, the last couple of centuries. It's been dealing with a radioisotope that has a 5,700 year half-life. And so it just doesn't have the precision for working at the very, very top of cores or things that have happened, uh, or at least in the 1970s in the last couple of decades. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah, if it's all radiocarbon modern, then that's not going to be much help. The only other thing would be to have some sort of like biological fossil marker. We talked about the ambrosia pollen or ragweed pollen uh, rise. But if you do that, you have a single point and then you have the surface and you can draw a nice straight line between them. But if there's any variation, you would have no idea in the sedimentation rate. You would have no idea that that existed and your interpretations could be wildly inaccurate because of that. And uh, we referred to a little bit uh, in the last episode how the study of ours was pioneered around uh, the turn of the 20th century by Baron Gerard de Geer. And uh, when he and some other uh, Swedish researchers recognized how similar varves were um, to tree rings. And then going from there, by the 1920s, uh, you're starting to see um, work like that of Fritz Nipkow, who published his PhD thesis in 1927, looking at diatom assemblages within specific bars in Lake Zurich. And yeah, uh, that w- we were having a flip through of that thesis, that PhD thesis from I think it's from 27 uh, from the University of Zurich. Anyway, but uh, it was shocking how modern it seemed now it's all written in german so i think we can be excused for missing it in our earlier discussions of the fairly early history of paleolimnology but my goodness does it seem like we were a little bit late when we identified the first paleolimnologist like first modern paleolimnologist because you know the figures are hand drawn but you could have identical things in a paper published today. yeah th- this this totally blew my mind um, so it's one of those things where this is a PhD thesis from almost a hundred years ago. Um, so again, it's in German. Um, so it kind of reveals our biases a bit. I'd never, never seen it before, but it's seen like, uh, mentioned in a footnote or a reference in John's talk. Um, but then actually looking at it, I was really shocked by how modern it was, not just in terms of the content, but in terms of like the typesetting, um, yeah. you know, and then 
we like went, oh man, we're way off. So we rolled it back to like his supervisor's thesis, which was like from 1910. I was like, okay, no, this makes more sense than what my perception of like an early um, 20th century piece of yeah, science it's is in supposed like gothic to look like. Font. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, Nipkow's thesis, and um, we'll put a link to it in uh, the show notes when they eventually go up um, for anyone that's interested. But uh, yeah, it definitely changed my um, paradigm of when, what science was like in the 1920s. Yeah, I don't think I've ever said, absolutely, you must go and have a look at this link in the show notes. Though you should, because Adam works really hard on them. But uh, you really have to go and have a look at this because it is it is pretty impressive considering it was it's 90 plus years old. Yeah. And I think we've talked before when we're talking about like citations or papers or something about, you know, the bias of what is available online and like that window move back around the time when I was just starting to do my undergraduate work. Like there was a wall of like when I... And I don't know when that got pushed back into the 1920s, and maybe I've just not looked at enough stuff from the 1920s. Um, but I've looked at stuff from, like, you know, the 60s and 40s, a fair number of, like, papers that, let's say, are more than 50 years old. Um, but not, I guess I've not looked at too, too many that are, like, 100 years old, um, as opposed to reviews summarizing older work. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, this is, this is crazy to me. Anyway, it's a serious hey. aside, but... Serious aside, but but I think one that fits, it's not just an aside for the sake of it. It fits into this discussion of the history of paleomnology. Have a look at it. There were people do it, there were people doing some very what we would think of as modern paleolimnology quite yeah. a long time ago. And yeah. great work. Very recognizable as a work of paleomnology. But then in other parts of this, we've talked about uh, VARBs more generally. So we talked about uh, Bradley in the 30s looking at marine, non-glacial. Uh, marine varves in uh, in the United States. Uh, I don't think we've we've discussed it yet because it's kind of pushing where we left off in some ways, timeline wise. But Roger Tippett uh, in the the mid '60s described annual uh, variations in varves in a lake in Ontario called Little Round Lake, uh, which one might be familiar to maybe our Canadian listeners. Uh, John Small himself has worked on this lake a little bit. It's not far from Kingston, Ontario, probably part of that story, but a, a very well-studied lake and looking at varves uh, at that time period. Yeah, and then, like, there's a bit of a time jump then from the 30s to the 60s, but then that's when we're starting to see, um, I guess, more and more, more, I don't know if there's a little bit of renewed interest in paleontology in coming out of the 60s and the environmental movement that we've talked about, but then all of a sudden... There's just more stuff available, more equipment available. So in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, freeze coring techniques are becoming more commonly used. And then also um, tape peel methods where you're combining varves and then using tape to peel off the outermost section of a freeze core so that you can then slice the tape very, very finely to get into varve and subvarve um, uh, intervals, so almost looking at seasonal succession. And like yeah, well, I think that was part of the reason for that is in order to, well, there was, I think it was just an explosion in science in general post-war. That's the dog in the background. Apologies for those of you on listening. Uh, just post-war, there was such a, a explosion of, of people doing research everywhere. And uh, the basic ecology was part of that. It's kind of linked into the, you know, when the people at Yale and Hutchinson and all those people were studying all of these things. I think they just brought up general questions about the ecological nature of the environment. And one of those things is about the seasonal changes. And one way to do that is to go and monitor all the time. But that's hard in northern Finland uh, where, you know, going and, and seasonally measuring all the time or anywhere, you know, I think it's in southern Finland that they worked. Uh, but sediment cores might give you a way of doing that. It's a way of looking at the environment without having to be there all the time and having these really high, high definition, for lack of a better term, uh, tape peels of seasonal changes in phytoplankton and all those things was one way to fill in that gap of of monitoring. Yeah, and there is a particularly intense, crazy, insane uh, expression of this with like a tape peel. Um, um, famous work uh, done by um, Heike Samola, 
um, where he looked at 418 years of um, like Lovo Jarvi in southern Finland. Um, and that is a lot, a lot of intervals to examine. That is seasonal, so far. Seasonal yeah. changes. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I don't know. That was hundreds of samples. And uh, I mean, you're not talking about a huge volume for each sample, but boy, that's a lot of work. That is an insane amount of work. And, you know, when you think of just like one lake and, uh, um, and now, so that was published in 1990. And now, like I have never worked or known anyone that has worked directly on any tape peel analyses. No, me neither. You know, like we're now in <clears throat> like the advancements in, in imaging and stuff is, I guess, a lot of these, I guess, but that was diatom. So, um, but the fine resolution stuff is going to be more driven by XRF type analyses these days. Yeah. I think there are people who still, you know, it's, it's maybe a little more niche. Um, but there are people who still work at very fine resolution, um, on freeze course primarily because you can do that. You can set that interval and it doesn't really work that, that fine, uh, for gravity course, for example. But, anyway. but yeah, I, but I think that the idea, just in general, you have to be asking pretty specific questions to want to go to that sort of resolution. But it, it is part of the the history of filling in how you can uh, take advantage of these varved records before it's possible to start to date them. And then once you end up with that dating uh, from a radioisotopic or some sort of chronological uh, method, then that opens up the opportunity, not just in terms of uh, where you can work, obviously, because varved versus no varved is an instant decision as to whether that would be applicable, but also the questions you can ask. And then when varves aren't present, um, up until the 70s, there was no way to get any kind of real chronology. Um, and I, I mentioned already, um, we talked in some detail in episode three about the mechanics of using radioisotopes to develop dates but here in terms of just like you know the history timeline that we're forming here the first use of lead 210 to date lake sediments is in a paper from 1971 and then there was like a burst of interest in a couple of different models in terms of um uh whether you're using the constant initial concentration model or the constant rate of supply model um and so the crs model um is the one i I'd say is most widely used today, but that, you know, was, um, defined, established, developed, published, published yeah. in 1978. And then all of a sudden, so then you have that burst of activity in the seventies and all of a sudden everything is changed in terms of there are now an ability to apply dates to the sediments from virtually any lake. Um, yes, there's caveats in some where it's problematic for whatever reason, but, no yeah, longer but that's limited. not a method issue. It's yeah. a lake issue, yeah. It's no longer limited to varb lakes. And then all of a sudden, uh, the potential applications of what could be done with paleo just, like, exploded overnight once once you were able to say how old a particular sediment interval was. Mm-hmm. And, that I, and I don't know the answer. To, oh, sorry. I, I was going to say, I don't know the answer to this question. I wonder if the, so the CIC model, constant initial concentration, and the CRS model are the most widely known. Uh, they're the ones that are kind of, are in the textbook chapters and that sort of thing. And there are some others like the CFCS model and things like that. I'm curious if there were others that are out there. Like there are models that were applied to the same kind of thing, but just never took off or were not as appropriate everywhere. Or there's just, it was a fairly niche kind of combination of radioisotope chemistry and mathematics that only a few people like Peter Appleby and Frank Oldfield and Edgington and those kind of names were interested in in looking at. And I don't have a and I don't have a question. So like for example, the the first paper, the paper in 1971, the Krishnaswamy and Lal, uh, I had never heard of that paper, even though I've applied the ideas of it, or at least the follow-on applications of it many, many times. Uh, and it just makes me curious as to whether in that same time period, you know, there are all these ones that didn't uh, didn't make the cut and didn't get applied broadly. Yeah, maybe. Like, uh, this is where, you know, my uh, depth of knowledge is pretty shallow. And I've basically 
done the reading that I have needed to understand what's going on in dating. But I've never really dug into, you know, geochronology and, you know, what other potential avenues were explored. Like, you know, was Lead 210 the first one that was really looked at? I have no idea. Like how many yeah, other radio, I, like isopes that were either dead ends or not, maybe not dead ends, but less uh, practical in terms of um, their usefulness or didn't work quite so well. And then like Lead 210 was the winner um, versus the only one. I have no idea. That's a good, that's a good point because it has, you know, it has that nice in between half-life of 22 odd years that makes it really good for dating those time periods and, and how they arrived at that because someone had to decide that lead to 10 would be something they would at least attempt to, to, uh, measure, uh, and how they arrived at that is an interesting thing to think about and whether there were maybe, uh, options that didn't, uh, make the grade. Yeah. Other other candidates that, you know, mm-hmm. their, you know, the absorbance peak was, you know, less distinct or overlapping with other thing, background noise. Like, I'm sure there was a hunt that, you know, um, and things being crossed off the list by some. Yeah, because it's pretty common. Like, it's a common isotope, right? It's part of a, a series that's everywhere. It's in the rocks. It's That's the beauty of it. Uh Whereas some of the, well, just to compare to like the non-native uh, radioisotopes like cesium and americium, uh, those work great, but, you know, they have to be put into the environment so they don't uh, necessarily occur everywhere so well and there are things about them. But lead 210 just seems to be a perfect choice. Yeah. So, ah, that's something maybe we can explore another day. Like, was it an obvious choice or was it like the result? Is it obvious only in hindsight? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, but... All of that as an aside, uh, what Adam said before I uh, derailed us for a couple of minutes there with my thoughts uh, was that absolutely without this and with this now, the ability to answer all sorts of questions uh, was there. And then kind of coincident with that was the emergence of a lot of these kind of problems that paleo was uniquely suited to attempting to uh, disentangle. One in particular uh, had really exploded into the public consciousness around that time and um, uh, and has really tied to the history of paleomology very, very tightly, and that was uh, acid deposition and acid rain. And um, yeah, so as we enter the 1980s, all the previous field, laboratory and dating techniques um, I developed to the point that uh, paleo was poised to address the question of the day, which was, um, you know, had lakes acidified? And so before we get to the actual question, just a little bit of history on acerin in general, uh, I think it was um, the term itself was coined in something like 1872 um, by um, Robert Smith based on work between uh, um the acidity of rain and atmospheric pollution in during the industrial revolution in like Manchester, England. So the idea oh, of your rain hometown becoming, there, you know it, uh, becoming uh, acidic due to um, human influences have been established for a while, but public awareness of acid rain, especially in the U.S. and North America in general, and I guess the Western world in general, really uh, increased in the 1970s after reports from the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest in New Hampshire of the harmful environmental effects that are uh, driven by acid deposition. And this is coming, again, as we've mentioned several times, on the heels of Silent Spring and the environmental movement kind of becoming a very wide... Yeah, it was well in the news and all of the issues with uh, over-fertilization had happened... uh, a little less than a decade before that. And uh, yeah, it was just a, a time of sort of an environmental awakening. And at the same time, the sort of effects of this long-term history of acidic deposition and then also the long-range transport of those uh, pollutants from point sources often to locations well outside of the industrial heartlands of, of um, the westernized world 
uh, we're all coming together. Yeah. And it had become a super political issue, much like climate change is today, um, with their serious um, disputes or lines in the sand drawn between uh, industrial advocates and environmentalists, um, disputes over whether some of these acidic lakes had always been acidic. And so there are a whole slew of basic questions that required a historical perspective that were not really answered yet, um, including had these lakes acidified? If so, when? By and by how much? What is the cause? Were lakes losing their fish populations due to acidification? And, and you know, at this time in the late 70s, early 1980s, these were serious questions that did not have any obvious answers. Um, the first one would be, and we mentioned this before on the show, is, uh, you know, if you're trying to reconstruct pH, you know, your direct measurements are only going to go back to uh, the 1920s at the earliest, because that is when the pH function, but the pH function was invented in 1909 and reached its modern form in 1924. But that means there's no modern measurements to compare against any earlier than the 1920s. Yeah. Anywhere in the world. Why are we having this debate about climate change then? Because we've been measuring, like Fahrenheit came up with his temperature scale in like 1720 or something like that. <laughs> There's none of this question about pre-impact uh, for temperature. So we can, they, you can't use that excuse, <laughs> climate deniers. <laughs> Come on, man. Yes. <laughs> Which is gotta, a huge portion gotta, of our audience. <laughs> You've got to keep the cone of silence. You can't reveal the handshakes anyway, and the, uh, the code words of our vast global scientific conspiracy <laughs> yeah. hoax yeah. Yeah. to the internet at large. Oh, anyway. But yeah, no, that's a good point. It's unlike temperature, you couldn't measure pH prior to the 1920s. So that was a legitimate question because it just didn't exist. There were no data on that topic. Uh, and, and so the, there was a need to quantify it. And, and so not only to be able to go back in time in the history of an ecosystem, but to be able to add a number to that, because for, if you're going to introduce legislation, that's going to, uh, curtail the emissions of large, uh, industrial operations, there needs to be some sort of numerical, uh, component added to that for it for it to get through the political system uh, the, the arguments have to be convincing yeah exactly like do this and this will happen and um you know the so we don't so we need an indirect means of measuring ph and now we're going to kind of jump back in our timeline a little bit but at this point diane toms had already been flagged as a particularly useful biological proxy um prior to dating and so the first steps to quantifying diatomicology uh, with respect to pH occurred uh, much earlier, not, like not, not that different from, or not that much later than the development of pH. Uh, so it's work from the late 1930s, separate, well, I guess it would have to be at the same time because pH would, as a measure, it explode onto the scene and then comparing lakes. Um, but the work of Friedrich Husted uh, in the late 1930s um, develop, dividing diatoms into categories that you'd still see referred to in uh, the literature today. Um, so this would be acidobiontic, acidophilic, indifferent, alkalophilus, and alkalobiontic. And what are yep. those categories, Josh? Uh, so acidobiontic means only found in acidic conditions, acidophilic being liking, or philic being the, the suffix, I guess for enjoying or, or surviving in those conditions, indifferent being having a broad range generally or being circumneutral. So they, I think uh, neutral is the synonym for indifferent in this category. And then the opposite side of that. So being found in uh, uh, alkaline conditions and then alkalobiontic is the one that's often dropped off of this list. Like if you see the Husted uh, diatom uh, pH categories, you often won't see alkalobiontic. And that's just be so that means only found in uh, alkaline or high pH conditions, and that's just not a common thing for diatoms because they tend to dissolve in high pH because they're siliceous uh, cell walls. But there are some species, very rare species, that that do not only prefer but only survive in those conditions. Acquire it, 
So yeah, so by the 1930s, you know, it had already been established that diatoms, you know, different species are found in different places with respect to uh, the pH scale. And then this got developed further. Um, so by the 1950s, uh, the work of Gunnar Nygaard um, dividing diatoms into indexes. And this is something, again, that you, you know, if you, you don't have to go too far back in which you just find references to index alpha, index omega, and index... Epsilon. Epsilon. Um, and those are basically... Um, They're an estimate of the proportion of those species in those categories. They based on the who said categories. So the acid units, I believe, are five times the abundance of the acidobiotic to like skew it towards the really acid species plus the proportion of the acidophilic species divided by the same of the alkaline species. Uh, and then the uh, omega and epsilon indexes are the same except divided by sort of the richness value. So as a standardization technique as a way of kind of giving you so a, a high index alpha would be a high proportion of acidic taxa versus alkaline taxa. Yeah, and so in the 50s, I guess you're looking at successional communities of diatoms, applying these indexes to infer some things about what's going on in the lake. And then what we're going to start seeing more and more is the various threads that we've talked about over the last couple episodes kind of coming together. So then by the 1960s, you're starting to see the application of statistical techniques. So kind of growing out of a lot of the work we talked about when we talked about the Hutchinson group, um, you know, use approaching ecology in a more mathematical way. So you're starting to see linear regression analyses being applied between uh, the index values and measured pH. And so we're getting closer and closer to the ability to infer past pH through time. So they were doing, so that was being done at least um, in the 1960s. Um, and so then all of a sudden, once you get to the 1970s, um, you're able to date the sediments on top of all of this work and you're going just from like broad successional changes to being able to actually pinpoint to within uh, a couple of years, plus or minus a couple of years as you're going back, or at least in the, uh, in the more recent sediments to identify timing of changes. Yeah, and I guess there were some, some attempts to do this earlier than that. Some, some of these ratios and to apply them to uh, other environmental uh, changes or degradations or whatever it is, problems. Uh, and some of those may not have been kind of people thinking in that, in that perspective, looking at the sediments, looking at changes in species as a way of reconstructing environmental conditions. But maybe, in, I guess, uh, not as statistically rigorously they didn't brought in sort of the mathematicians and and the statisticians at this point uh to address the problem so things like john stockner uh used ratios of different diatoms based on their uh, morphology so it's often called the a to c ratio the a raphid to the centric ratio in the 70s often uh, i usually call it the pointy round ratio but it's not exactly the same thing um, and, and, you know, good ideas, but perhaps a little bit simplistic for the kind of questions when you have such, such, uh, broad communities, so many different taxa with so many different, uh, environmental preferences, any of those more simplistic kind of ratios are always going to fall a little bit short because you're not really taking account of different species and individual species and their optimum and tolerances, which we know can be. Uh, they can have the same optima, but very different tolerances, which make them respond quite differently to changes in that environmental variable. And that's why we really need to be able to quantify the taxa based on all of the information we have on their distribution across a wide range of lakes, as we know from how a training set works, in order to really be able to take advantage of those data. And I think another thing, like in addition to what you're saying there about maybe the... Um, I don't think it's a case necessarily that they weren't statistically rigorous enough, but the change, I think it might more have to do with pH and the changes being so much bigger. So if you're looking in a, you know, like a serious acidification story, you're, it's becoming like a thousand, you know, even like 10,000 times more acidic. Um, there are not too many eutrophication stories where 
your nutrient levels are going up by 10,000 times, let's say. So the scale of changes in some of these cases was so broad that the, um, you know, it's like coming in from both ends. It's like the changes are really big and then, you know, a lot more wiggle room in the statistical end of things because less power is necessarily needed to identify said changes. So half, half of one and uh, um, half a dozen one and six of the other kind of thing. But anyway, um, then we have this really coming together. Um, the multivariate data sets that were available through diet home analyses brought statisticians in because I'm not too sure if there were any equivalent data sets available um, anywhere for them to do these kind of analyses in terms of like, yes, there's like multivariate analyses done on other things, but when you're working on much bigger scales of like meadowlands or grasslands or mammals or whatever, like the amount of effort you're required to get like an assemblage of 400 different species in one particular environment, the scale was so much bigger as opposed to a single diet. And you would never, and also the variation too. Yeah. I think that's the other point is that, you know, in, a, a location you can go from really, really basic to really, really acidic lakes. In order to have that many samples in a grassland, they're all going to, you know, the community will be different, but they're all going to be in the same environmental context. Whereas that's not the case with lakes. They can be so different from one another versus plots, which would be the ecological equivalent in most uh, respects. And because of that, the potential is just so much broader for these techniques to really be developed based on that variation yeah and so it was really kind of you know you know a bunch of things coming together at the same time it's like you had the tool and like the people developing the tools are attracted to the uh to the question for one particular reason of pushing what could be developed on a statistical level um you had the uh ecologists interested on like the massive changes that were happening in terms of like the um uh, more policy-driven interest was coming because it was a very pertinent environmental question. All this is coming together. And then you're having, um, by <clears throat> the early 1980s, you're seeing uh, transfer functions being developed between diatoms and diatoms, diatom assemblages and lake water characteristics in large geographic areas, such as the Adirondacks. Well, and as we said, the computing power just came to be at the same time as we talked about in, in episode eight, we're doing these by hand is a pain and having the computing power is a big part of it. So we end up with names that I think will be more familiar to listeners who are more uh, early on in their journey through the paleoluminological uh, approach. People like John Burks and Kyoto Brock and Steve Juggins all of whom were applying the, who are paleolimnologists, they're statisticians as well, and cross the boundary between these and the ability to bring this statistical, mathematical mindset to the data of, uh, of, that are collected by paleolimnologists and, and the students at that time period. Yeah, and so another whole development here was, and, and it was, uh, yeah, computational power. Personal computers are becoming av- uh, available to the point that, um, you know, a uh, professor on like an insert grant would apply to have a, you know, 286 for I don't yeah. know how many thousand dollars that would be able to <laughs> crank through a PCA over the course of a weekend. Um, that was like kind of, you know, within the reach of the ecologist, like the computer science capabilities had escape the mainframe in many ways yeah. again all yeah the coding even the coding language like who would want to come up with a pca on like punch cards how the heck would that work out <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the guy who developed pc well guy, when did we do this when was p it was from the 20s wasn't 30s it? right yeah, yeah. 20s or 30s so he, didn't, he would go man i wish we had punch cards <laughs> yeah okay fair enough but not yeah fine but not for someone who wants to run it on a, on a regular basis uh, applied to all of these different lakes or all these different data sets. So, no, it all comes together. And that means that by the early 1980s, we have all of the all of the components we've just talked about, the environmental need, the questions, the political will, the techniques, all are together to take the cores, date the cores, analyze the cores, analyze the data that come from them, 
in order to solve these problems. So, you know, it, and it's a, one of those great s- success stories of the science. I'm not necessarily saying that it's been solved environmentally or uh, politically, at least. Yeah. But from a science Answer perspective, those questions. yeah, got and, done. You know, there are major major investigations that were like uh, collaborative between many environmental groups, but the big but the big ones um, that you know are well established in literature would be uh, Perla one and two. So these were paleo paleoecological investigations of recent lake acidification. Uh, Perla one was very much focused on the Adirondacks, New England, the Great Lakes states, Northern Florida, and did a series of, I'm not sure how many, full cores. And that was like the, I guess, North American push to answer um, some of the questions around when and by how much lakes had acidified. Um, uh, at the same general time, you had work like the um, the SWAP program in uh in Europe, uh, so that's a surface water acidification project. That's what it is. And then it had a paleolimnology program within it that um, is summarized by Batterby and Remberg in 1990. And it was looking at similar questions, but looking at sites in uh, Norway, Scotland, and Sweden. And then that was done in the early night. The actual work was established in the 1980s. I'm not sure when the cores were collected, but the final kind of summary was published in 1990, um, saying that, yes, many of these lakes in these, you know, soft water regions did acidify. They're not as naturally acidic. They acidified, you know, in the uh, 1950s and 60s-ish, depending on where you were. Yeah, exactly um, when it would make sense based on the history of uh, deposition of those pollutants. And based on the diatomic sandwiches, they acidified it by this much. <clears throat> And then by the time Perla 2 rolled around, which is a little bit later, um, it was like the first, I don't think, I question a little bit um, whether it was the uh, first, uh, the real first use of the top-bottom approach, but I think it's the first big use of the top-bottom approach. I'm not sure of any earlier ones, but I'm not sure if... Well, I have to ask John about it. I have asked John about it, and I I don't think it is. Um, But it's one of those things where there might be some earlier ones that would have been in a PhD thesis, but not necessarily published of just like a small number of lakes, you know, but the where, where Perla was a little bit different. I think it's something like it's pushing like 40 lakes. You're getting a big regional coverage that is specific to the Adirondacks, specific yeah. to the Adirondacks and the bottoms um, were defined by the dating profiles produced by the Adirondack lakes examined in Perla one. So I think, so yeah, so that's where it's a bit murky that it, it may not be the first top bottom one, but it's probably definitely the first really big, really rigorous top one where you have lots of dates to, to establish what your bottom was, as opposed to, I don't know, some sort of Just the bottom of the core. Yeah. Whatever it was at the very bottom of the core. Whereas knowing the date based on the sedimentation rate for lakes of that type or that exact lake, depending on if it was one that was in the original part of the study, does make it more rigorous. And then also the uh, funding that would have come from uh, being able to carry this out in order to address these kind of questions would have allowed it to be applied to a lot more lakes in in a specific region. So I think it's really tightly uh, constrained within a geographic region, unlike the Perla 1 project, in order to particularly focus in on the, on the Adirondack Park uh, area of New York. Uh, and that's where John Small enters into this story. Um, and we only mention it, not because, yeah, obviously because he was our supervisor, but we'll uh, tr- have him on the podcast in a, in a few episodes in order to maybe flush out some of these these parts. Um, yeah, pick, pick his brain a little bit about some of how how this came to be. Because it's kind of, kind of funny. It's like, in some ways, like when you read this and you read it in a textbook and realize that John was a young man when a lot of this was going on. Um, but once it enters the textbook and you have like the quest to solve acid rain and acid rain solved, it seems like ancient history in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a little, you know, it's not that ancient history. No, I was alive no. for a huge yeah. chunk of this. Yeah, work. even I um, was <laughs> part of it. <laughs> and maybe, maybe I am an old man. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe there is the part of that. Perspective is changing a little bit. But, uh, um, you know, it's kind of funny uh, – over the course of this, it's like the transition in like a history episode 
from talking about Lewin Hook and his little animalcules. So that's ancient, ancient history. And then we're now into, oh yeah, no, I was, I was, you know, I definitely remember new spots on acid rain when I was in elementary school that would have been contemporary to this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the other thing then I would say is that of all of these acidification projects we've been talking about, another impressive thing is how quickly change did come about. So the Clean Air Act is not origin- not only about acidification, but there was a large um, revision or whatever kind of component of it that was uh, specific to solving some of the issues or trying to address the issues of acid rain. And that was done in 1990. Not, you know, not, not really more than a, a decade or a decade and a half after people started addressing these with some of these kinds of applications. A little bit longer from the more experimental stuff like at Hubbard Brook, but not too, too much uh, really in the grand scheme of things. So it does show that change can happen fairly quickly when uh, the science is there and when there's the political will following that. So uh, an interesting thing. So by nineteen, you know, by nineteen ninety, the amendments—that's the word I was looking for before—to the Clean Air Act related to uh, particularly sulfur dioxide emissions were enacted into law in the United States and Canada. Followed, uh, followed, or was a little bit before. I can't remember the exact timing, but it's right around the same time period. Uh, and and similar things in Europe. Um, yeah, the pace of development when you was so rapid. Like when you compare like, so the first paper on dating of, of uh, led to 10, 1971, you know, the clean air act goes into effect in 1990, I think. Yep. So you got 19 years from like, we have no idea how to date a sediment to we've got, uh, you know, dating established, Biological proxies established. We know over large regions of the globe um, what the acidification histories were. Um, fix this international problem, and uh, you know, by the same token, what is it? The Kyoto uh, Accord. What was that? Two thousand five. Oh, um, 90, no, no, it's ninety-two. Oh, I don't. Is that long? Ago? Kyoto Protocol. Oh, yeah, so it's like twenty-eight years. Come on, we've had one and a half times, should be fixed by now, this whole climate change malarkey. Um, But I think that's not a bad place to end uh, this one. And yeah, well, because I mean, like just to summarize, you know, at this point, by the end of the 1980s, you know, what I was saying, trying to inarticulately say a minute ago is like paleomimnology had like absolutely coalesced over the course of like, you know, that last 20 years into a well-recognized discipline. To the point that it had its own journal, JOPL, was founded in 1988. Um, and uh, yeah, three episodes in, paleo has begun. Yeah, <laughs> although it happened apparently in 1927 <laughs> based on that one that one thesis. But no, uh, the modern paleo no doubt. Uh, the way anyone starting a, um, a degree today would recognize all of the steps and everything that goes into it. And, uh, and potentially even using some of the same tools, literally same microscopes in some cases, you know, same, uh, gamma counters or same cores, uh, you know, the stuff lasts and, uh, and is still as applicable as it was the day that it was purchased or built. Um, but beyond acidification, as we move into the next episode and think about that, you know, things become that that little diversion about or digression about uh, Kyoto is is not um, was not a bad segue in some ways because problems do become a little more complicated in some ways. We we moved into a multi proxy, multi problem kind of world, and uh, paleolimnology I think is is capable of addressing some of those questions, and and that's maybe what we'll get into in what I think will be the last episode in episode four. We'll, we'll see if we can wrap it all up. You know. Everything after acidification into 45 minutes or less. Maybe, maybe not, but that, that is the goal. And, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's a good place to end it. Paleo has established itself, and then next, next time we'll be looking at paleo's life beyond pH. Sounds good. Um, anything uh, sort of general grab bag or... Mailbag? 
well, the mailbag. It's we had that one, and we had I was that really one excited about it. Nothing new, nothing new in the mailbag this weekend. Uh, that's okay. It took us uh, eighteen episodes to get the first email, so, so, so but, as long as we're, we're good by episode thirty-six. Yeah, exactly. But we did, uh, by the time this comes out, we'll have passed a thousand overall listens, which is not, uh, not, not that many, uh, but <laughs> very exciting. So thanks to all of you who have uh, taken the time to listen to an episode. We do appreciate it. Especially and, the uh, bots. Rack those numbers up, please. Yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. Popular, well, we've been talking about this this week. I don't know why popular paleolimnology, uh, an episode from like right in the middle almost of, of the catalog, has really taken off. Um, so We're basically inept and not knowing what we're doing, so we did something pretty, particularly magic with search engine optimization for that pretty much, episode. Yeah. So, cool. But, uh, but yeah, if you want to get in touch with us about anything you've heard on the show today or any of the past episodes... Are there any glaring mistakes, errors, or um, anything we've overlooked in this history so far? Please let us know. Um, you can contact us directly on Twitter. The Twitter handle is Core Ideas Paleo. Um, or you can send us an email at coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to look at the show notes that accompany all episodes and all past episodes, uh, you can visit our website. Eventually, we'll have these history ones up, and I think they'll be a pretty cool resource going forward once they're done, but they take me a long time to do, so I'm behind. But uh, you can visit uh, uh, Um Honestly, just pull the web address off our Twitter page. Again, uh, Core Ideas Paleo. Is that right? That's right. Core, yep. Ideas Paleo. Core Ideas Paleo on Twitter. And that's the easiest way to get in touch with us find the website because otherwise I have to spell my name and uh, <laughs> until next time uh, thanks for listening and uh, we'll uh, catch up with you for potentially the wrap up of our history of paleo sounds good take care out there thanks again see you soon